0: Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Eloise Epstein, what an absolute pleasure it is to have you on the show. I'm really looking forward to it. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jim. I am so excited to be here today.
0: Oh, oh we're going to have lots of fun, aren't we, Eloise? We know it already. Um, so let me launch right in. Um, to set the scene a little bit, because you're a bit different from the guest I, I, I I usually have on the show. It's usually directed at general counsel and those in legal leadership position. But you're not a general counsel. You're a procurement expert. You recently wrote Trade wars, pandemics, and chaos—how digital procurement enables business success in a disordered world—and that's, a, I think, that's your most recent book. And it's a, it's a pandemic book, as in a COVID pandemic book. That's when you wrote it. Tell us a little bit about that. Help us set the scene um, for the Eloise Epstein point of view. Um, on the world of procurement?
1: So I am a procurement champion. I love procurement. And I know many of your audience is probably cringing right now when I say the world procurement. Oh, we're going to get to, we're <laughs> know, gonna get to that. I,
0: Don't you worry. <laughs> uh,
1: but I'm, I'm a very proud procurement person and I am a champion for the profession. I think and I would argue uh, vehemently that we're in a transitory stage And I think I will place that real change around when the trade wars came out a few years ago, but certainly accelerated. March of 2020 just completely thrust the entire profession into a new light, into a new way of operating. And everything that we thought we knew about doing procurement Uh, changed overnight, almost literally overnight. Within the course of, I'd say, 30 days, it changed. And so uh, many of the themes I had been talking about for the few years before 2020, all of a sudden became front and centre, digital, risk, ESG, and so forth.
0: So let's do a bit of a deeper dive in each one of those. Let's start with digital. What what, What changed, what accelerated... Um uh as a result of the pandemic.
1: So, well, first of all, adoption of digital and competency, because historically procurement's still a fairly new function. I, I would hazard to guess lawyers have been around for hundreds of years, centuries in, in various ways. And procurement, I think in large degree hasn't as a, maybe been in the enterprise twenty-five years give or take. And so it's a new function. And as a result, I still think we're fairly immature. And as a result, the systems and the ways of working are still fairly immature. And so we have not been operating at the same level as other functions. And But we live in a digital era. We live in the Amazon era where you and I could pull up Amazon and in 60 seconds or less buy 10 things we didn't know we wanted. And then we go to our corporate jobs and it's like, oh my God, like how do I even navigate this? How do I find out how to buy what I want? So-
0: We're, we're, we're back in the 90s for those of us who worked in the 90s. <laughs> exactly. So, um- but 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 that's right, isn't it? It certainly feels to me like there is an absolute expectation now amongst everyone that that experience you get as a consumer, that should be the experience you're getting at the enterprise level. Uh, um, am I
1: stating it too high? No, absolutely. I mean, and 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 in, in my first book, I I sort of got at that. It's like how can you book te- airline tickets on your mobile phone while you're walking down the street easier than like, I don't even begin to know how to book my travel at Kearney because it's so complicated and we're probably better than most. And, and so there, it's a dire need to be better at digital.
0: And and, um, certainly let's say from March, 2020, you saw us, you saw an acceleration of that in the, in the procurement community. Yes, because we
1: had to, and also I would add, we're living. living, And we'll get to this in a moment, but we're living in a platform era. Salesforce is a platform for salespeople. Uh, Amazon Web Services is a platform for enterprises. Our cars are basically consist of multiple platforms, whether they're drivetrain platforms, entertainment platforms, you know, on and on and on. So. This whole idea of layering platforms, like, that is critical in the enterprise now.
0: And I have to say, so, Eloise, that's the very first – the first reason I reached out to you some months ago is I read your article um, on that, essentially, that platform theory, the best of breed theory. Share that with the audience because I I found that fascinating and honestly compelling – uh and i'd love to love for you to get get that um get the view out there because it, it's going to be great to, great to discuss
1: well thank you yeah um i i have so historically procurement has operated under the delusion that we need a single closed loop system which is a cascade from the ERP logic that you have one end-to-end system we'll get to erps in a minute But procurement sort of followed the same path and said, "Okay, we need to do uh, supplier identification and spend analytics, and then uh, sourcing, and then contracting, and then requisitioning a payment, and let's just stitch it all together in a really nice, uh, in a really nice platform, and it meets this quote-unquote best practice that procurement consultants have been talking about, and it's all good to go." and Except that's that all was good in theory, and maybe that was good in the late '90s, early 2000s. But the way businesses operate today is so much more dynamic. You have acquisitions and divestitures coming, uh, you know, onboarding, offboarding new companies. The complexity of systems, uh, mega, you know, integrations from here to there. I mean, I have clients with 50, 60, hundred ERP systems. I think I have one client that's just under 200. That's no no end-to-end solution can do that. Like you have to move to this much more platform approach and that's what it means to be digital. One of the things to, to be digital is to adopt a platform approach versus a fixed end-to-end solution.
0: And and, um, and so by platform, here's my understanding. And, um, It is um, a way in which you can essentially swap in and out best of breed, um, fit-for-purpose solutions. Um, Is that a fair
1: description? Exactly. No different than your iPhone or Android device where you have four things. You have a common user experience because you're going to tap and you're going to do each uh, function you have a common uh, integration layer or an app store so I can easily add an app take an app out and that all that plumbing it happens in the background and it's not me as the user doing it. then you have a data foundation so I have data that can traverse one app to another and then you have this cross app intelligence that uh, much like if you think about what Siri does Siri takes the totality of your activity, and data, and then can actually apply intelligence to respond to you or take action for you.
0: And so can I ask you, Eloise, how common is that view of a platform view swapping in and out best of breed solutions? Because my experience has been selling software into the enterprise that I time and time again, I do come up with procurement saying, well, we've got a generic tool that kind of does what you do, Pursuit. So we should be using that generic tool. We've already got it. So uh, it it hasn't felt like to me yet the industry more broadly is adopting your view, but I'd love to get your take on that.
1: Well, I think it's changing and it, and it has changed. And I think on my, I first started with this theory back in 2017, and by the way, this is what happened to the commercial side with Salesforce 10, 15, 20 years ago. So like, of course. Yeah. like I didn't make this up. This is this is already in progress. Um, so uh, without a doubt, uh, it, this is changing and this is coming. It's coming slow to procurement, but in 2017, all economy companies at procurement folks would look at me like, I don't know what this yeah. witchcraft is that you're bringing to me. Don't like you can see yourself to the door. I'm I'm exaggerating, but, but like yep, 2021, of beginning of 2021, it was like all anybody wanted to talk about. And now, I mean my my calendar is booked day in and day out doing workshops, explaining this, educating people, helping, designing strategies, helping them to adopt this. So it uh, the the tide has shifted dramatically in the other direction
0: um okay so before we lose all those general counsel that are listening out there
1: before we lose them all
0: let's let's kind of narrow in and and let's do a bit of a deep dive in the relationship that sometimes testy relationship between the office of the general counsel the legal department and procurement um how would you describe, from your experience, what's that relationship been like in the past? I can give a description, but I'll, I'll hear you first, um, and, and then let's kick off the discussion on that topic from there.
1: So, uh, as a procurement person, almost every client I walk into, legal is a black box. I think calling it it's a black box. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think calling it a relationship. <clears throat> excuse me, calling that a relationship would be overstating. <laughs> like like almost every client says, oh yeah, we, we have some influence over IT, marketing, we're getting some, but legal, nothing, like nothing. Like, and it's accepted. It's totally accepted.
0: It's accepted as in A-C-C-E-P-T, accepted. It's also an exception, I've seen, off to the rules that procurement have often put in place around purchasing and buying and, and competitive sourcing and so forth. Typically, the answer from procurement is, "I oh, actually know legal has an exception to those rules." That—that—that's that, your experience
1: too. Totally, my experience. Which exceptions drive me crazy? I—I I, I just uh, the fact that procurement allows it, and the fact that legal asks for it, and, and to some to be fair, marketing sometimes the IT sometimes does this. It's not solely legal, but. Across the board, it's always legal, and and I don't like exceptions because I think I think that creates different problems.
0: Okay, so uh, let, let me be um, Mrs. or Miss General Counsel um, for a moment, and we're going to say, Eloise, there is no way in the world I can have procurement involved. They do not understand um, legal. They're only interested in um, uh, in um, hammering down my law firms going to destroy my relationships, stay away.
1: So, so let me take this from the procurement point of view, first of all. So historically, procurement has been very cost focused and it's like a giant sledgehammer walking around looking for nails. And even if it looks kind of like a nail, they'll just you know, smash the wall and, uh, and, and just indiscriminately do exactly what you just said. I think as a profession, we are changing, we are maturing, we are much more focused on third-party management, driving innovation through third parties, risk through risk through third parties, ESG through third parties, and I would say advanced relationships or partnerships with third parties. That's procurement's future. So I think what we bring to the table is a lot different than almost everybody listening to this will have experienced. Now, that said, legal thinking that they're a special flower, I refuse to accept that too, because all I hear is, oh, we're special. And I I don't buy that. It's, It's not that we have to change everything and we're not going to eviscerate everybody's relationships, but you're not as special as you think you are.
0: By the way, Eloise, I'm going to use special flower in the notes to this show because I have to say I love that phrase. Um, so so I, uh, what I can say to you, Eloise, is certainly in my recent experience, I have now started to come across procurement leaders um, who are, who do have what I think is the right mindset, where they recognise they might not have the particular skills or the understanding, let's say, of the legal domain, but they do understand, um, and this is what I'm I'm much more enthusiastic about, they do understand that what lawyers need is something which is fit for purpose. If there are going to be procurement kind of, if you like, guidelines or best practices around sourcing, Um, around price and quality and relationship building that they need to have a fit for purpose tool in order to do that. Um, And and so, which is consistent, I think, you know, consistent with your platform theory. So that is encouraging. Um, I I won't say it's the rule right now. It's probably more the exception, the discussions I've had, but I can certainly see it and I I can see it has changed over the last few years.
1: Yeah, no, it has changed. And and i I mean, I would say that procurement can actually bring some good things to legal that like we have good practices. If you just take the the tools that we have, the insights we can generate, the ways of operating, even if I just leave them at your doorstep and you just take them inside and do whatever you will, like that's better than what's happening today because in essence, what you have is shadow procurement happening within the legal black box and you have shadow IT for that matter. And there's probably something you can learn from IT and just like there's something you can learn from procurement. And, and once you do that, like the, the, it starts to unlock all kinds of new ways of operating and that should actually be exciting. And correspondingly, if you leave a few ideas at my doorstep, you know, we as procurement might actually take them and change and do what you just described, Jim. Where you have CPOs that say, "Yeah, you know what? For legal, we need fit for purpose." And hey, you know that worked so well with legal, I should probably do the same thing for marketing.
0: Uh, and I was just going to step in and ask, well, what are the steps that both the procurement side and the legal side should be taking um, to start bridging the cap and that, that gap? And I think you, really those kind of um, uh, strategies that you've just mentioned there where it's a bit of give from both and a, a recognition that both can learn from each other and it's got to be a partnership, doesn't it? It can't can't be the sledgehammer. Um, it, it's got to be a recognition of the bringing together uh, of the different skills and the domain ex- expertise to be able to deliver... The best outcomes, and the best outcomes have always got to be not only about getting the best price, and and probably just not necessarily just choosing on a single matter the best you know law firm. It's got to be long term about enhancing the relationships, um, thinking about the you know what I've called the supply side in legal, the law firm side, and what we're doing to improve that experience. And frankly, create more opportunities to win work. That's what you want to be doing for both sides of any
1: marketplace. Exactly. And if you look at procurement, like this idea of three bids in a buy and just whittling down the supplier to the lowest cost, like if that's your strategy, that's automatable. So like procurement will go away if that's our only value add. But if you actually go to the other extreme, where you think about a joint venture, and I believe it's Mercedes that has a partnership with Nvidia, and Nvidia does AI embedded chips, and so they have a partnership where Nvidia chips go into every car that's manufactured, and then they get a kick, you know, uh, so much, you know, profit from each car sold like that's like to me the pinnacle of procurement success where you're facilitating that you're negotiating that you're not killing that deal because often like to get to that outcome it takes a long long time it takes legal wrang- wrangling with lawyers it takes wrangling with business development folks on how much does you know each person get who owns the ip on and on and on and actually, if you think about procurement being the facilitator of that or the orchestrator of that, that's a win-win. That's not cost savings. That's not yesterday's procurement. And so if I take that example and say, hey, I can improve your relationships with your law firms, like who wouldn't want that? It's it's a
0: no-brainer, isn't it? So there's. it sounds like to me, Louise, there is a lot of work to be done even on just the messaging that procurement delivers, if the perception out there in the market amongst legal teams or, in fact, any other teams is it's all about cost, um, that's never going to land because implicit in that is that's going to ruin my relationship with my supplier law firms. I've worked too hard um, to build that relationship, so... So the messaging piece, and really a, a perception which, you know, has been built over the last whatever it is number of years, that's got to change. How's that, how is it going to change? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think procurement has to take the first yep. step. That's not to let the general counsel folks off the hook. Just means the the way we approach that has to be a little bit different, and 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 sort of like I said. Like we use in procurement, we use advanced su- supplier relationship management tools and insights, much like sales folks do with CRM. Like I'm, I would if I showed you the kinds of things we do on relationships and building towards partnerships in in a structure, highly structured way. I think that might be pretty interesting to most GCs. I would also say we do optimization we do very complicated optimizations in terms of factoring multiple uh, variables whether it's it's cost or quality or delivery or um, you know time so the idea that you would take these variables and optimize different scenarios to award business in certain regions to certain demographics like these are like if I showed you that, not tell you have to use it, but just showed you the kinds of really cool things we do, like you'd be blown away or the insights that I can take around uh, contracts and the ability to turn that in and tie that to quality data into um, relationship data and on and on and on. Like if you could see some of the things that I see, you'd be completely blown away or more importantly, marketplaces and which is very much in in your realm, Jim. Like when I can show you what we do just for goods or even other services that are not legal, I think most legal folks would come away like kind of blown away with the amount of sophistication happening, at least in the procure tech world. And it's like, those are like branding things or education things I'd leave at your doorstep, not force them down your throat, but just say, Hey, you might look at these someday.
0: And, and Eloise, look, the truth is pursuit itself only, and it's not a pursuit plug, but we only really exist, if you like, because we have grown to fill a gap, a gap that did exist between procurement and the legal department because the the kind of principles that um, pursuit ends up, if you like, delivering on are, are the traditional procurement principles around price and quality and streamlining some automation um, and the data points that you would typically get when you have a marketplace to be able to understand which supplier and why and improving those relationships. It's only because that didn't exist, if you like, in the world of generic procurement platforms um, that pursuit exists. So, uh, in one sense, I'm certainly grateful, but we are a product. We're a product of um, the disconnect, I think, that existed between the two departments.
1: But I also think you're representative of the future too because I would argue we're going to get to more marketplaces because Amazon really, the one thing they've done, they bring buyers and sellers together. If I'm going to sell you know, this special kind of pen, Well, like, how are people going to find that special kind of pen? So Amazon is just bridging suppliers and buyers. And that's what you're doing for legal. And so I would argue we're going to get more marketplaces because that's actually representative of the future. But I think it's everything around the marketplace that's largely untapped is is how much do I award to one firm? How, you know, what do they versus another would there be a benefit w- what happens if i actually ask the firms for their input maybe i'm putting things out to bid that that are just make no sense to the firm right and like these are collaboration things that procurement has learned through hard knocks so wouldn't it be great if we could you know give that to legal
0: so, so the marketplace theory no surprises is absolutely the theory that certainly pursuit is built on because recognizing if you can do that for basing goods and services why don't why can't you have the same data-driven marketplace for legal services accounting other professional services that to me it feels just very obvious that that is the way the world is going to go it's, it just might take a little longer to get there the more complex those services are but it has to be ultimately a digitally driven, online, data-driven marketplace
1: approach, whatever that serves. Agree, disagree? And it has to be. And and the yeah. piece that I'm very excited about is I want to see, you know, I know there's not a plug for Pursuit, but I want to see marketplaces for every professional services function. The fact that there's not a, a Pursuit-ish type solution for management consulting just boggles my mind, or IT services like these are things that we well, start to see them for marketing a little bit now, but like, these are things that are long overdue. Oh, and that's, and
0: Eloise, that's the exciting bit. <laughs> that's the exciting bit because that's what I think we've got um, ahead of us in the future. I was going to ask you, and this might sound like a shameless plug and maybe it is, but I was going to ask you, you're of course a member of the pursuit strategic advisory board um why you you would get hundreds of requests um to to join boards you've got more work that you can poke a stick out you're writing more books uh why did you join ours eloise
1: yeah and by the way i want to note that i'm on uncompensated of course yes
0: yes absolutely Um, right yeah uh
1: i do it because i actually am passionate about this topic and one of the, like I said, sort of at the beginning, the idea that there's a, like an exception, like I have to understand that. Like there is something in my brain that just refuses to accept that. I, I don't deal well with authority. And, and so, so that's like one of the intriguing pieces because I want to understand what is so, I want to understand what's so special about legal and I want to get under, you know, underneath that you know, or, or get into the tent and, and see. And, and so far, because most of the advisory board is, uh, is, is, comes from the legal profession, I'm learning a lot. And, and you probably can tell I love to learn. So understanding, like I use the term GC, but the first time I heard that on one of our calls, I had no idea. I had to <laughs> yep. look it up and figure out what it was.
0: So uh, General like, counsel for all those um, listeners out there that <laughs> haven't heard the term
1: before. And, and so, so, so I'm very excited about just like, what is this black box? I've got to know this black box. And then the second part is, is when I realized, and early on when I heard about Pursuit, when I realized that it was a marketplace for services, specifically for legal, I thought, my immediate thought was, oh my God, we're going to, like, somebody's going to expand into other services, so I want to see what this marketplace, how it plays out, and to be able to get a firsthand look, That that's that's why I'm doing it, because I think this is more representative of the future.
0: Fantastic. And if you, I mean, one of the discussions I remember we had um, uh, a few weeks ago, you, you talked about um, Pursuit, and, and this time generally being procurements opportunity, and I love that phrase. Talk a little bit about what, 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 does, that, that, what does that mean to you?
1: I mean, if we can't shed the sledgehammer co- of cost legacy, both in the way we operate and the branding and how we present ourselves... Then we are actually we have we're in trouble. So so we're at this really seminal moment. We can actually lead the enterprise on corporate objectives such as sustainability, uh, on social social good, on uh, risk innovation. Some of those things I laid out earlier. This is our moment coming out of COVID. Everybody appreciates the role procurement can play but the the but it's also an existential threat because if we don't make that leap and we're going to stick around swinging the cost sledgehammer we're going to find that all of that gets automated through marketplaces through other means through Amazon and and then we're going to find ourselves much like CIOs found themselves about 5 10 years ago looking around thinking well what's my remit now The good news is we see that, but CIOs I think got caught off guard because they were managing big teams, doing data centers and all this. And then the the cloud came and like pretty much took them out of a job. And so I think procurement's timeline got compressed really quickly. And it became like, there's two paths, go do all this strategic board level objective stuff or fade into the sunset. I don't think there's much in between. That's a fascinating. I have to say, that is a
0: fascinating insight. And it sounds like, how do you view the last few years through the pandemic? Did it accelerate procurement to that essentially that fork in the road, um, where you either become strategic, or you risk disintegration?
1: Is that what we think happened in the last few years? Yeah, it's exactly what happened, and. It's not all because of the pandemic, like some of the stuff, like the digital transformation was well underway, but the pandemic really put a much bigger focus on risk and the impending climate catastrophe seems to have taken hold over the last year or two. And certainly the social consciousness uh, after George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter movement really galvanized certainly here in North America, a a real push to, like, we can't be deleterious to the communities that we operate in. And so all of those things have coalesced and most of them touch procurement. Think about any organization, if you're gonna decide that you're gonna go green, well, that's good, but it's gonna take you years to change your products. Now, you might be able to accelerate your, some of the packaging and some of these other things through procurement by bringing in suppliers with green packaging or green ways of operating. That's good. But the other thing is, is the other way to move the needle, say, on sustainability, is to get your suppliers to be green and to influence their suppliers to be green. So all of a sudden, some of these objectives become very tangible to procurement. Procurement can influence that. In a way that other functions, HR can't do that, IT can't do that. And so we we sit at this, you know, sort of unique intersection. See, I told you I'm really get really excited about procurement. But but the other piece is if you flip it around, the greatest risks to every enterprise come through the third parties. So, and that's typically not looked after by the IT group. So who is looking after the third parties? and the risk to the organisation through third parties should be procurement. Not really happening that much.
0: Is it fair to say then, Eloise, that you see the most significant when you're at those cross when procurement is at those crossroads and deciding which way it's going to go? How important is um, how important is ESG and procurement's ability to? To own and really deliver on ESG initiatives of an organisation, because it just sounds like to me that that is a huge part of it, um, something that it can own and really make a difference. Which is to the at the heart of what is you know a top priority for um, corporations worldwide now. Is that if you were to pick one strategy, would it would it be absolutely owning and nailing ESG? Um, in the course, whatever, in the next 10 years? Or, or is, it, is that too narrow approach? I,
1: I think it has to be. Well, I, I, and I think this gets back to this, this discussion we've had now a couple of times. Is it, like our, like the reason we have so many supply chain disruptions is because our entire supply chains have been built out over 20 years to be just stretched out to maximize cost efficiency. At all at at all costs, and or uh, not, uh, but like at at, at, you know, at expense of everything else. Yep, exactly. And so then we've created very brittle supply chain uh, design. And so the like the wind blowing knocks over, you know, uh, do, creates a disruption. A, a, a labor strike in one town can send shockwaves. A, a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal can send a shockwave. And that's because we've done a really bad job designing. And that, so I think that I, I don't think you can just go to one thing. That's the mistake. So so now we're course correcting away from cost and we're going to do risk and ESD and all the other things. But I think we have to not over index on any one thing because that, the flexibility and agility we need is the important piece. Because the moment you go all in on ESG, and, and I think we should do a lot on ESG, is the moment there's an opportunity cost for risk. So then all of a sudden what happens? We're gonna get some, you know, massive disruption coming through our third parties and so we're gonna be scrambling. And and my goal, I look towards the future to to design for the next generation because we're 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 decades into like these decisions that we're dealing with today were made decades ago. So we need to start designing for the next generation.
0: So what what is What's top of mind for you when you think about the future of procurement, and what and what procurement does need to be designed? What 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 what's taking up most of your time? Um, uh, and yeah, t- t- tell me about that. Anyway, well, to the extent that we haven't covered of- it, anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, is is championing these changes because uh, and really, I will say that procurement leaders as a whole have not been at the level of their other counterparts in the leadership teams. And I think, I don't think that's, that's not news. And I'm not the first person to say that, but I think uh, if you're not willing to take the leap and really own your own destiny. And so in in my current book, I did a case study on British Telecom and the CPO there firmly has made you know he's owning his destiny and he's he's sort of this next generation of cpos and um or or lend the candy at j who wrote the forward to my book you know he you know he is very much a, a a visionary and uh and and really sees this same sees the same thing and the opportunity for procurement to make that difference those that's that's what I'm working on is is to build more and inspire more people like like uh, Cyril at BT and and Lana at J and J to really say, look, th- now is our time. There's no better time to be in procurement because if not now, when? Because we 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 just had a crisis that brought procurement to the forefront. Like if we can't take this momentum and run with it we might as well just pack it up and, and call it a day.
0: Yep. No, I love that. Um, Eloise, I love to wrap up with some of my favourite questions. Um, what's the hardest thing you've ever done, personally or professionally, that you prepared to share with us on the show?
1: Ah, uh, well, the that... Um well, uh, two things. The obvious one being uh, my PhD. That nearly because I was working full time and and pursuing my PhD, and not not a recommended. Uh, that nearly, ne- killed, nearly killed you. Not recommended <laughs> at all. Uh, but then, all you know, the other one that I'm very proud of is coming out, and uh, that was really hard and um, very scary for a company at the time that was not terribly diverse, a firm and management consulting firm was totally unclear. And and I've been at Carney for 22 years. So I've witnessed some bad behavior over the years and, and which was true and maybe is still true at other places, but it was scary to come out. And so doing that has probably been, uh, so I'm very open about uh, my transition and my my journey so that it 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 paves the way for other people because I had no role models and so it was doubly scary
0: um and now can I ask Eloise, do you get reach outs from others and people do say do look at you as a role model and what a fantastic outcome if that's the case
1: yeah and and um yes so I do get that um but I and and then and I don't actually, it's not so much that I want the like, people to tell me that. I just, I, you know, even if they never tell me, I just know that being out and open, that I can be visible representation. And sometimes, because I'll do interviews or, uh, you know, our um, recruiting, I can tell when I get on a, on a Zoom call, like the tenor changes when people see you know me as a re- visible representation of diversity, the conversation just becomes very natural, very fun, very disarming, and and so so to me that's a, the perfect example. I don't I, I I mean I have a big ego and getting adulations is great, but but I also just knowing to be a representative um, of Carney in that way actually makes me happy.
0: And what a I mean, what a wonderful feeling to be able to m- walk into a room or get onto a Zoom and suddenly the tone changes for the better. Yeah, yeah. People really... I-, I mean, that, I have to say, Eloise, to me, that feels like a superpower, okay? And and congrats to you for having that. uh. I- have to say you're a natural anyway. First time we met, you know, at our strategic advisory board in person here, um, you do change the atmosphere in a room absolutely for the better. So double down on that superpower because it's um, really important. Thank
1: you. Yeah. I mean, and it's not to say it's easy. I mean, it's scary. And oftentimes, especially when I do public speaking and I do a lot of public speaking, it, you know, it, it's exhausting, but it also is important, and, uh, and 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 it's important for people to see that it, it. Like, it's easy to. It's sort of like ESG, right? You you know, like the sustainability we've been talking about. It's easy to put it on a slide and say Carney's diverse, and Carney's this, and Carney's that, or whoever is this, and whoever's that. But it's a lot different. When you walk in that room, or you know, yeah, I mean, it just it becomes when you become that that bullet point on the slide, the whole thing changes.
0: Fantastic. Last question: Anything that keeps you up at night now? Otherwise,
1: <laughs> well, a lot of things. Apart from your next night. book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well the impending collapse of democracy, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, I, know, uh, I shouldn't be laughing. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, 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 the likelihood that the war in Ukraine will spiral out of control as you, if you don't know my PhDs in history, uh, and I study our military history specifically. So if you study world war one, you know, how these, how wars can spiral out of control. Because wars are not supply chain disruption. Wars are wars. And yet supply chains get disrupted. And it irritates me when people talk about this as the next disruption. It's not a disruption. Like these wars cannot be controlled and they spiral out of control. And and so if you study, I spent many, much of the time, not much of the time, but during the pandemic, a lot of time studying. Uh, you know, uh, especially World War One, you can start to see just how quickly flashpoints can escalate. So that really does keep me um, up at night. But, but also I, I will say this, that I think anybody that does risk management right now should not be sleeping at night. Like you should go to bed with visible anxiety if you're doing your job right. And I go to bed with my client's anxiety on my mind because on their behalf i'm always thinking about this stuff and because the deeper you sort of peel the onion back the more you realize just how insecure our third parties are which means most of our enterprises and most of our physical infrastructure for that matter is at risk and so like i i go to bed with these really big complicated problems on my mind uh, because like i i I want to certainly contribute to the solution.
0: And certainly when I think about um, uh, the war and what's happening in Ukraine, it, it's funny, we have history, um, and but history is just a culmination of moments. And right now, we're in a particular moment. Um, it's the culmination of the previous, let's say, two, a couple couple of months. Um, And each moment, just for me, just adds to the risk of getting out of control. And when you look at history, you don't actually get that. And you just say, well, that was a different circumstance and it was a massive world war. But all it was for me is a culmination of moments. And that's what's happening right now. And like you, that's absolutely what keeps me up at night. Um, because I don't know what tomorrow's moment's going to bring and how it's going to exacerbate, um, uh, you know, the culmination of the, you know, all the moments that have been leading leading up to today, um, and that
1: that's how things. Well, and, and yeah, well, yeah, sorry, yeah, and 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 this, they they can also leave things undone. Arguably, like, not 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 to get turn this into a history lecture, but. The, the the beginning of World War One, there were four empires: the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, the German Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. Think about that. All of those are gone at the end of nineteen eight at the end of the war in nineteen eighteen. And the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire arguably is still not settled. A hundred plus years later, the Russian Empire like, is still being settled. Uh, you know, in the, in the Russia-Ukraine war. Like, there are, like, these... So the problem is, it's not that the, the hostilities cease, but, like, the implications go on for centuries. And I think that's that's the, that's why I also say that wars are different, because, like, we should be worried about this, because there's not an easy off-ramp, and just stopping the bombing actually is when the hard work starts. it has been an absolute...
0: On that somber note, it has... <laughs>
1: I know. But it has been an absolute
0: pleasure um, speaking to you. I've had an absolute blast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm sure the audience is going to absolutely love this episode.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Bye-bye for now.
0: Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me jim the host of the show via email jim at pursuit p-e-r-s-u-i-t dot com we'd love to hear from you